Town Bank Mortgage, NMLS number 512138, is an equal housing lender. This podcast is for informational purposes only. And now, the man born with a 5 o'clock shadow and with the NMLS number 2028201. He is a gentleman. He is a scholar. He is... Tyler Crawley. Welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of the Markets and Mortgages podcast. I am your host, the aforementioned... Tyler Crawley, and we got a lot to get to, which is surprising for a Tuesday show. Usually Tuesdays are kind of boring. I'm not going to lie. Usually it's kind of like we get some inventory data, which I like the inventory data from Altos. I'm a big fan of Altos, uh, but sometimes it's just number oriented. Today is the exact opposite of that. We have a lot to get to, a lot of drama to get to. We're clearing up myths, exposing new ones, I should say. Uh, and of course, we will be talking about inventory here on the Tuesday edition of Markets and Mortgages. We got to start. We're not going to spend too much on this because I'm not surprised at all by this. But we got to talk about it because this happens far too often. In fact, it seems like this is always the case. So Stefan Curry, of course, NBA superstar, Golden State Warriors. I mean, just without a question, uh, immense talent. And I like Curry. Um, you know, he's a big time golfer. He's done a lot to help promote the game. There's this really great video of him getting his clubs regripped at like Dick's or something. And he was like walking out in the parking lot. And it was just so funny because you would think like, that's what I do. Like I go to Dick's Sporting Goods to get my clubs regripped. Like you wouldn't think that that's what Curry's doing. You think he'd have like someone go do that for him or I don't know. It just, it was just kind of funny. And so I, I have no problem with Curry. However, I do have a problem with his recent action about a proposed development near his very, very, I'm sure, amazing uh, $30 million mansion. So they want to build affordable housing close to his mansion, and he's not having it. He is not. Um, In fact, uh, he writes... We hesitate to add to the, quote, not in our backyard, parentheses, literally, rhetoric, but we wanted to send a note before today's meeting. The couple wrote in the letter saying safety and privacy for us and our kids continues to be a top priority. So they're basically writing to the city of Atherton, arguing that the construction of the 16 unit property near their estate should not happen. And now normally I'd ex- we expect that, right? I and mean, this is just what happens. People, this is this happens far too often. People have these very nice homes and they don't want to build multifamily, especially not affordable housing. Under normal circumstances, this would be like, eh, yeah, I don't like it, but I understand it. I mean, I'm not for it, but it's it's a big problem out there. It's why the single family zoning has become such an issue. This happens way more often than it should. But what makes this story interesting is that Curry himself has been a big proponent of dealing with the wealth gap that exists in this country, specifically focusing on the racial wealth gap and joining a nonprofit in 2021, in which focused on trying to find a way to solve the 
racial wealth gap that exists because there is a, a racial wealth gap. I mean, if you look at the average net worth of a white person versus a black person, I think the average net worth for a white person's I don't know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, average black person's around 70,000, 60,000, somewhere around there. But one of the big reasons for that is housing. And this is true, right? I mean, we, we, I don't want to get into it because um, we could spend an hour talking about it, but we can talk about the sort of historical discrimination that happened for blacks, Hispanics, you know, even poor whites, um, you know, certain neighborhoods, you know, the whole idea of redlining that happened, that existed. And they, those families were excluded from the ability to buy homes, to get financing, to buy their home, which then didn't allow them to build wealth. Cause that is the number one way that people build wealth in America buying a home and they were excluded from being able to do that. And so one of the ways that we can correct that wrong is by making homes more affordable, allowing people to find themselves in a situation where they can buy a home. Uh, you know, we can, you know, there are a lot of products out there that you know, lower the down payment, find a way, you know, programs out there for first time home buyers. Uh, there have been other programs that have been released by, you know, other institutions trying to help people who have historically been discriminated against uh, when it comes to mortgages and housing. But the best way to solve all of these problems is by making housing overall more affordable. And the way you do that is by building more of it. It's, it's very simple. It's really the easiest thing on the history of the planet. Everyone always tries to figure out how do we how do we fix this housing situation? It's super easy. Supply and demand. Uh, we have a lot of demand and not a lot of supply. We need to increase supply. Now, right now, demand is depressed, but it's, it's going to come back. I mean, there's there's no doubt about that. Um, but we need to get more supply out there. And so any way we can build, I mean, and, and another benefit, you might say, well, Tyler, this is probably apartments. How does this help the situation? Well, it helps the situation because the more apartments that you buy means the more supply there is out there, which means rents start to fall. The lower rents fall means people aren't spending as much every month. It means they can save for a down payment and they can one day buy. If you are maxed out every month, paying your rent, you're never going to be able to save for a down payment. I don't care how clever financing gets, unless you're talking about an FHA, or not an FHA, a USDA or a VA, you are putting money down. I mean, it might be as low as three and a half percent, might five percent, but you're putting something down. And if you have no money to put down because it's all going to rent, then you're never going to be able to buy a home. And so there is a lot of hypocrisy here with Steve, with Stephen, with Stephon Curry, who's basically saying one thing, but doing another. And like I said, I like Curry. And so maybe he's just kind of not looking at it from that angle. And he, maybe he doesn't, you know, he's a basketball player, right? He's not an economist. <laughs> so maybe he is not aware of the reality of the situation that one of the main causes for the wealth gap between whites and blacks is home ownership. And one of the ways that you can alleviate that, solve that problem is by finding a way to make homes more affordable for everybody, but everyone will benefit, especially people, families, and neighborhoods who have been historically discriminated against. Um, they're the ones who can't find those starter homes. They just don't exist anymore. And so the more housing we can build, lower prices, get more people into the homes. But this had to be brought to everyone's attention because this happens far too often 
where people talk about, oh, it wouldn't be great if we had more affordable housing. And they're like, all right, we're going to build one right across the street. And you're like, well, no, not here. <laughs> Someone else's backyard. Because, and it's important to remember this. This is one of the things that's so funny about NIMBYs is, you know, in, in Curry's obviously kind of aware of this because in this letter he even says, well, you know, literally not in our backyard. A lot of times people think like, well, I know I support how if you put housing somewhere else, I would support it. I just don't want it in my backyard. And that's where the that's where the, the acronym comes from. NIMBY, not in my backyard. Everyone wants housing somewhere else. <laughs> you have to in order to support housing, you have to support it being built where you are. Because everyone always supports housing somewhere else, but they never support it in their backyard. Hence, nothing gets built. So at some point, if you're a true housing advocate, you have to advocate for it in your backyard. <laughs> Otherwise, it is a empty advocacy. So yeah, Stefan Curry, got, you got to call him out. You got to call him out when they do dumb stuff like this. I hope someone talks to him and explains to him why if he wants to help out and reduce that wealth gap just overall, but especially between the races, we got to build more housing. That is the number one way that people build wealth in this country housing. So I talked about that a little longer than I wanted, but <laughs> it's important. We got to talk about it. Okay. This is the big story of the day and it deals with something that we've talked about here on the podcast before with regards to Wall Street and what impact they have had over the last couple of years on the housing market. And I got I to gotta bring this up because to me it was like, it was, it was hysterical. So there was, this, there was this realtor out of, I think it was Arizona. And I never remember the guy's name. It's like kind of a funny name, but like it relates to housing. He was a realtor in Arizona and he put out this TikTok in which he was insinuating that Zillow was manipulating markets. They were going into markets. They were buying homes under value, which I always thought was weird because it was like 2001 when he made this TikTok. And housing at that time was like on fire. So I was like, how is Zillow buying homes under market? Like it's impossible. So I mean, right off the bat, it didn't make any sense. And it got worse from there. So he's like, Zillow is buying all these homes under market. Then they are, you know, they have like 10, you know, on their books. And then what they do is they don't fix them up or anything. They then all of a sudden sell one for a higher price and then someone buys it. And then that becomes the comp. And then all the other homes are now worth that same value. And then they sell them for that price and boom, Zillow makes a ton of money. And they're doing this in neighborhoods all over the country and they're making money hand over fist. And oh my gosh, Zillow is destroying the housing market. Well, that TikTok comes out. And I'm not kidding you, within like a month, Zillow comes out and announces not only are they not making money with this iBuying program, not, so not only are they not buying homes under market and then doing what this guy said they were doing, they've actually been overpaying for homes. Like this computer system that they came up with, the algorithm was not working <laughs> and they were overpaying for homes. They couldn't move them. They couldn't scale what they needed to do. You know, when you're buying a home and you're renovating it, you know, there's certain things in life you can scale with regards to economics. There are other things that you can't and like repairs and, you know, painting it. You can't scale these things like you have to have someone doing those things on each house. And you, if you have someone working in, say, Phoenix, Arizona, it's not easy to get them to, say, Dallas, Texas or Austin, Texas or to Raleigh, North Carolina. It's just it's not efficient. 
like you could with say something that you can you know transmit over you know the internet you can't do that you need labor needs to be where the product is and so zillow comes out and is like oh my gosh we're losing all this money we need to shutter this entire program because it's going to bankrupt the entire company I mean, they didn't say that but that was basically was i mean they lost almost a billion dollars <laughs> that's this program was so bad they lost almost a billion dollars and so that conspiracy theory was just completely discredited. I mean, I've never seen something be discredited that quickly and that epically. I mean, it, it was like, not only is that not correct, Zillow's not manipulating markets. Zillow almost went bankrupt, <laughs> losing money on this program. So they're not actually making any money. Well, here's what's amazing. So um, Prashant Gopal and uh, Patrick Clark over at Bloomberg had a piece out Monday morning about how Wall Street is just getting taken to cleaners right now by amateur investors. Right now, they are killing it. And they were killing it before the pan or during the pandemic, and now they're killing it once again. And Wall Street is just getting their their clock cleaned. And it's, it's kind of funny. So uh, Gopal and Clark write, first-time buyers and small investors have the upper hand on supposedly sophisticated players that badly misjudged the market. It's quite a turnabout. More than a decade ago, Arizona was at the center of a foreclosure wave that hit local mortgage borrowers the hardest. Private equity firms swept into Phoenix and other once hot US markets and were able to buy homes for pennies on the dollar. This time, it's the so-called smart money that's getting played. So all this fancy technology, all these algorithms, they were beaten by local analysts and gut instinct. For example, uh, Open Door hired Wall Street quantitative specialists, aka quants, to model a portfolio that, in theory, balanced risk and reward. Even when it became clear to many local analysts that the market was stalling, the I buyers and other institutions kept purchasing. In April, the Cromford Report, a Phoenix data firm, put out a red flag to its 2,000 subscribers. I buyers kept buying to their own detriment. They way overpaid for these properties. So Wall Street firms that bought during or after the 08 crash undoubtedly profited as home prices spiked during the pandemic. Firms that bought during the pandemic are more likely to have lost money than made money. For example, in Phoenix, Open Door lost money on 89% of the homes it sold in the fourth quarter, an average of $58,000 a piece before accounting for fees and expenses. <laughs> I mean, they just got smoked. And, you know, that stat statistic probably is a shock to many people because of all these theories out there that, you know, Blackstone or BlackRock or whatever it was, it was buying up all these homes and, and they're destroying the housing market. Well, that was never the case. A lot of the data out there was just either miss, uh, you know, was either completely wrong or it was misinterpreted. And this is the problem that you have, you know, all of a sudden housing got really hot. Everyone started commenting on housing, including myself. And so I'm not saying I was immune from this, but you know, having done talk radio for 10 years and knowing how to analyze data to some extent, I knew at least what I was looking at when I was looking at, you know, whether I was looking at a balance sheet or whether I was just looking at numbers. And 
a lot of the theories out there just didn't make any sense. And there's a great piece over at the Atlantic um, by Jerusalem Dem- Demsas. I think I'm saying that right. She's written some amazing pieces for the Atlantic. She says that blaming the housing crisis on hedge funds and private equity may have been easy. A lot of people did it, made you know, a lot of YouTube videos on it, but it was dead wrong. <laughs> I mean, just like that guy in Arizona, the realtor, who's like, oh, this is the numbers. Um, it was just, just flat out wrong. Um, Jerusalem, I want to say, how do you say her last name? Demsas? Demsas? She writes, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but the idea that these firms are ultimately responsible for our housing affordability crisis is absolutely ridiculous. And no one who knows anything about housing markets believes it. I mean, that was the, that was the thing. And maybe that's why I kind of never bought into it. The people who do actually, or have been following housing for decades, people like, you know, Bill McBride of calculated risk or, you know, Mike Simonson over at Altos or, you know, John's burn or John Burns and just these people, you know, Connor Sen over at Bloomberg. I mean, these are people who I, I, I noticed knew what they were talking about and none of them were making a big deal about wall street and disrupting things in the housing market. So the question is how did this easily disprovable myth become sort of canon on Reddit message boards and you know, Twitter? Well, like everything else, Bad information. It's kind of like, what was the famous quote? Was it a lie? We'll get halfway around the world before the truth has time to put his pants on. Something like that. Uh, But Demsas notes that one particular stat that got a lot of attention online was just plain wrong. A report from the Housing Financial Services Committee reads that, quote, in the third quarter of 2021 alone, institutional investors bought 42.8% of homes for sale in the Atlanta metro area and 38.8% of homes in the Phoenix, Glendale, Scottsdale area. These are unbelievably big numbers, she writes, and they are literally unbelievable. That is, the citation provided in the document was not correct. But I was able to find the relevant report, and wouldn't you know it, it was it is not what it says it was. The report shows only the share of purchases made by investors not institutional investors. And this is probably a rookie mistake for a lot of people online who just haven't been following housing. They just assume that investors meant like institutional investors like Wall Street and you know all these these big time firms when really investors could be me, you, whoever, like one person. That's an investor. If you're buying an investment property, you're an investor. And according to census estimates, 70% of rental properties are owned by individuals. In fact, Wall Street REITs, which own about 1%, 1% of single family rentals, even after all this craziness, they own about 1%. And then of course there are other you know, funds and, and firms out there. And so maybe it's higher, but the overwhelming majority are owned by individuals who own between, I think it's like one in 10 properties. And so this stat got out there, 42% of homes being bought in Phoenix were investors. And so people assumed Wall Street, well, that's where people invest is on Wall Street. That's not supposed to be what they're talking about. And they weren't, they were not talking about that at all. So, you know, this big scary myth that was out there during the pandemic. I mean, and, and, and this is important because there were neighborhoods and places like Raleigh 
and a lot of other neighborhoods, HOAs like past covenants, new covenants to like prevent Wall Street firms or just investors from buying homes in neighborhoods because they were so fearful of these firms coming in and distorting the markets. And all they did was make their neighborhood less affordable or not affordable, attractive to buyers, all kinds of buyers. I mean, the minute you start putting restrictions on who can buy and who can't, your neighborhood automatically becomes less attractive to a lot of people. And so you're removing the investor component. Then your people are going, well, you know, maybe I don't want to move into what's going on over here. I don't like these restrictive covenants. And so maybe we're not going to move there. And so they got tricked by a lot of dumb people online selling them this bill of goods that didn't exist. It was never, it was never a problem. I mean, sure. Did numbers go up? Sure. Were, was Wall Street a bidder like anyone else out there? Sure. Were they helping to push the price up, especially in hotter markets? Absolutely. But were they the big bad wolf? Not even close. <laughs> like not even close. It's not, I mean, it, it, it's, they weren't even on the radar. Maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit on the radar. So people got duped by this and, they, and it scared a lot of people and it was complete BS, 100% BS. Um, all right, w- wow, we're going, we're going long on the first episode <laughs> that we're streaming here. We're going very long. Uh, real quick here, housing inventory fell to the lowest level since June. This according to Alto's research, housing inventory fell 1.4% to roughly 466,000 single family homes for sale for the week ending January the 30th. That's down 1% from the start of 2023. And we started 2023 at a pretty low level. In fact, we're now at the lowest level since June 27th, when uh, the inventory level fell to 444,000. And then backing up what we saw all last week, you know, we saw all this data. We got data on Friday, data on Wednesday and Tuesday, all saying that pending home sales were up in December. Altos has pending home sales up last week, jumping 6% in one week, showing that we're seeing more activity in the housing market. Uh, and that's reflected in price. The median price of a single family home in the US ticked up slightly to 415,000. That is now up about 2% from the start of 2023 when it was at 405,100. And then price cuts have seen a big drop. Uh, they're now seeing about 33.9% of homes on market are having to cut their prices. That's down. 10 percentage points when it was at 43.2%. It peaked in the fall at 43.2%. So big drop. So we're seeing less cuts um, to, to less cuts to the, the homes that are prices that are being listed at. There we go. Uh, and we're seeing penny home sales jump, inventories falling. We've got a long way to go, but we clearly are moving in the right direction. And then real quick here before we go, Obviously, we got a lot going on on Tuesday. We got the Case Shiller, the gold standard when it comes to home prices. We're, we'll be getting that data. 6.9% is what we are supposed to see year over year. And as I keep saying, pay attention to San Francisco. That could be the first area that sees a year over year decline since like 2010. It could happen, it could happen this month. We will, And of course, this data that we're looking at is from 
November. So remember February, but we're looking at November, almost February, but we're looking at November's data. And then uh, consumer confidence is supposed to jump up to, I think, 109, which would be the highest level in almost a year. So a lot of good things happening in the economy. I will say, all right, we got to go. You guys enjoy your Tuesday. We'll see you back here Wednesday morning for another edition of Markets and Mortgages. And I have a feeling tomorrow's show is going to be a little shorter, a little shorter. (laughs) My goal, as I always say, my goal is 15 minutes, but it's so hard to keep me within 15 minutes. It's very difficult, but you guys enjoy your Tuesday. I'll see you back here Wednesday morning for another edition of Markets and Mortgages. And remember, as always, do not wait to buy real estate. You buy real estate and wait.